I love nothing more than to go to my camp alone with a guitar and just let those lyrics and melodies happen. He had a fly rod in the hand and the hair was up in a red bandana. It was a red and gold plaid shirt and a pair of jeans and shoes and boots. And I saw that fly rod and looked at her and I went crazy. And at 6.15 in the morning, a guy knocked on my window while I was sleeping. He goes, well, full plane's leaving at 15. So, okay, I'll, I'll get right out. Roll up the window and the guy traveling with me, I looked at him and I said, I, I think that was John fucking Girok. He said, uh, we started selling it in Tokyo, the main IFNW logo merchandise. That'll tell you. I mean, that was being worn in discos, not duck blinds. Welcome to Flyline Podcast, where we enjoy the interesting stories behind the legendary guides and luminaries connected to Maine fishing. I'm Michael Jones. Today, we'll be talking with our special guests, Kathy Scott and David Van Bergel. Kathy and David live in Mercer, Maine, and also spend time in their native state of Michigan. Kathy and David first came to Maine when Kathy accepted a teaching position. David has a background in engineering, and they both have dedicated their professional careers to supporting others through teaching, mentoring, and through their kind influence. Kathy is an award-winning author of five books and is a contributing writer in many national publications related to cane rods and fly fishing. Both Kathy and David have been ardent supporters of Trout Unlimited, and Kathy has served on the National Board of Trustees, and David recently stepped down from the National Leadership Council. Both David and Kathy have taught a week-long immersion class in cane rod building at the Catskill Fly Fishing Center in upstate New York. David and Kathy are considered two of the most knowledgeable people regarding the history of the cane rod world, and they both enjoy building modern replicas of the traditional rod tapers, utilizing contemporary and traditional techniques alike. Kathy and David are the kind of people that live to give. They will always leave the woodpile higher than they found it, and you will never hear a soul speak an ill word of them. To know them is to admire them, and I know that everyone in the Maine fly fishing community holds them in the highest regard. It brings me great pleasure to introduce the Flyline podcast audience to my old friends, Kathy Scott and David Van Bergel. Kathy and David, welcome to the Flyline podcast. Thank you very much. Welcome. Thanks, Mike. Yeah, we're sitting here in uh, the headwaters of the Sandy River. So. In Mercer, Maine. Yes, indeed. Yeah, my good friend, uh, Scott Planting from Farmington, loved the name Mercer so much he named his oldest daughter Mercer. Really? So, yeah, yeah. it's just a great name. I had a wonderful trip driving over here today, and it's nice to be back in the area. I loved Farmington and whatnot. But, you know, guys, when I started the idea for the podcast, I was really trying to think about the kind of people that I wanted to, um, you know, bring out, the, the fabric of who really represents uh, the main fly fishing community. And I can't think of two better representatives than both yourselves. You've done a lot. Um, there's a lot of terminology in the world that we hear today, buzz terms like influencers. And you two have both had a very, very indelible effect uh, on the main fly fishing community in many ways. So it's a natural fit to have you on the podcast. And I think there's probably a fair amount of people that listen to the podcast that may not know who you are. And I think that they should. So let's jump into that a little bit. Um, let's go right back to the roots. You guys both grew up in Michigan. Yeah, we did. We grew up in basically the same small town. I was in town. Uh, Kathy was out on her farm about 10 miles away from town. And I uh, went to the same high school. And then uh, after we were, uh, what, three years apart. So then after that, we each uh, 
chose a university. I went to University of Michigan. She went to Michigan State. I was in lit school. He was in engineering. What could be more perfect? (laughs) (laughs) Total polar opposites, right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, we seem to get along fairly well. That's coming up on 50 years, so. Together. Yeah. Yeah. David, you studied engineering. I did. What kind of engineering? I'm, uh, I work in engineering. So uh, Mechanical engineering. I spent a year uh, working for the federal government for the Environmental Protection Agency in Ann Arbor. And that was with the uh, the uh, Auto Emissions Laboratory there, or Clean Air Lab for, for the EPA. He got to tell the heads of Volvo and Volkswagen, the end of the alphabet automakers, if their emissions were great or yeah. not. It was a test lab. <laughs> we did uh, all the testing for every automobile that comes into the U.S. Yeah, so imported vehicles. Had imported, had imported and domestic, everything. Excellent. Yeah, they all had to pass. And that's probably that's how I started. And then Kathy and I met again, or actually the, for, the, for, the, for the final time. And... Uh, I ended up leaving there, going back to school, and uh, becoming uh, certified in physics and mathematics for teaching. So then, uh, what brought you to Maine? Well, we the bottom was falling out of the auto industry, as it does in Michigan. And I was offered um, a job over the phone, uh, teaching English up in Van Buren. And we just packed up and moved out sight unseen to Van Buren. Loved it. Um, Part of the reason they wanted me was because I had a minor in theater and had a big theater background. And so they had just built an auditorium. There were 240 graduates that year. What are there, 20 up there now? Wow. After the Loring Air Force Base closed. Yeah. Oh, right. Yeah. Right. So after that, we went back to Michigan, and we even went to Idaho and worked for the Forest Service. And we started our lives doing everything together, which, you know, Michigan, Michigan State, engineer, writer, sometimes is a stretch, but we've managed to make it make it work pretty well. I think it's John Gerock that says uh, his choices have always been for more time and less money, and that's kind of, I think, what we've done. That's our <laughs> model. <laughs> So so then um, I went to graduate school for uh, to be a school librarian and was hired. I was offered two jobs over the phone from Maine. And we came and we checked them both out this time and chose Lawrence. And I was at the middle school then for 35 years. And for the audience, uh, Lawrence is in Fairfield. In Fairfield. Right, right. right. And at so, that time, I, I became employed as a director of a cooperative lending center for central Maine schools lending uh, science equipment and av equipment for all the various schools they would uh, pay into that center and then have use of the of the entire collection it was a perfect do it together job even though we were in different buildings because if my teachers needed a van de graaff generator David could bring it home that night, and I could bring it into school the next day. So if you lose power, do you plug it into a Vandergraaff generator? <laughs> no, but if you want your hair to stand straight up, <laughs> yeah, you yeah, put yeah. your hand on I it. understand. <laughs> I think that's great. So um, I think that's a natural um, segue, Kathy, to the work that you did by introducing fly fishing as a, as a component to the school. Because I remember coming over and helping out. You had a you had a program there to teach the kids how to fly fish. We did, and it was it was great. I had um, I just written my first book, and it was laying on my desk. 
And this little seventh grader named Sean came over to my desk and demanded to know why we had all these other activities and sports, but we didn't have fly fishing. And I had no good reason. So I went to, David and I went to a Trout Unlimited that night. It's kind of what got us through the door finally and said, I'm going to teach fly fishing. Is there anybody that can help? And I did the same thing with the aardvark shop. Went over to Mike and Bob and said, I'm going to teach fly fishing anything you can do to help because I am not an expert. And uh, we had fly fishing during an activity period on Thursdays for a few years. Mm -hmm. And as schools always change, they switched it out. So no activity period. And we had a varsity club then at the high school. We take them to Grand Lake Stream as their big culminating project. Did that for a few years. And then at the junior high, um, Mike McGee and Sue Morris were the phys ed people, and they said, you know, it's such a natural fit. We decided to teach every single eighth grader that went through the school how to cast a fly rod. And then after that, they had, um, we did that in phys ed class, and then they had the option of coming to the library and checking out rods and flies and going to the little pond out back that T.U. stopped with um, trout. You know, he thought, what a natural for Maine. I mean, Maine is like, you know, the center of historic fly fishing in the country. H.L. Leonard Company was here. Why not, you know, everybody, all kids know about this. So They should know about it. Yes. Right. I think a lot of them don't know about it. But yeah, as David said, um, Maine has a very rich history with cane rod building, which we'll talk a lot more about cane rods later. But um, so that kind of... Kathy, having that degree of attention, you guys started to do more work with TU. You started to really build a lot of relationships with people and started to know more people in the fly fishing community. And that really was a great launching pad for the Super Boo. It was. Um, basically, what was the Super Boo? Can you explain Super it? Super Boo yeah. was an information and education event that started as just somebody posted on Fly Fishing in Maine's bulletin board. I have a cane rod. I know how they cast. And somebody else said, I don't think they all cast the same. We should get together. And somebody else said, where would we do that? It's February. And then we said, well, we have a gym. So why don't you just get to, why don't we all get together in the gym? And um, decided that the fly fishing kids, it would be a good service project for them to arrange to have pizza and set this up and just invite the whole main community to come in and cast fly rods. And because David knew so many makers, and so did I, and people who had them, we said, anybody who wants to bring your cane rod We'll put them out in the gym and we'll make casting lanes and we'll just spend the morning in February casting rods. And it grew from about 50 people to well over 150 by the time 15 years went by. And we did things like we put up um, uh, posters and you could say the length, the weight, the taper, who made the rod. And then we put a lobster band on the grip so you could match those up and people could learn that all cane rods are not the same. They're not at all. (laughs) Different colored uh, bands on there, one color representing maybe the four weights, one the six weights and so forth. And the name Super Boo wasn't a mistake either because this was 
we planned this thing to happen around the Super Bowl time. Oh, that's right. So, you know, we thought Super Bowl, this is our, our Super Bowl. Yeah, Dave Hedrick, I think, from TU yeah. actually coined that. When, when is Super Bowl this year? I said, good name. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know. I know David. That's right. He, uh, he helped me with some of my work with um, the veterans and uh, and uh, right yes so he's a good guy um yeah so about about super boom my reflections of it were this uh i was starting to get into uh fishing with cane rods and i still enjoy doing that but you could take and cast someone would bring an original pain 101 and then you could cast david van burgle's version of the pain 101 yeah and they were not exactly the same no you know what makes what does make them different, David? Well, generally, the old uh, commercial rod makers would make a rod on a certain taper. That didn't mean that every one was the same either. So, you know, the, the pain rods that were were listed as Model 101s may vary. So it would depend certainly on which one you got and, and versus the one I made. And the one I made is based on the numbers that someone has measured of one of those pain 101s, they may not all be the same. Uh, so the one that you cast as an original may not be the same numbers as the one I made. Uh, the other difference is I really think uh, in our technology, the material's the same, but how we treat it is quite a bit different. Exactly. The way we're treating it now, uh, for one thing, I think the quality of the material is probably better. Uh, it's been selected for the purpose of bamboo rods in the past, you got a bundle of bamboo from China and who knows what it was like. It wasn't necessarily selected by somebody who went there, inspected it, and came back with the best stuff. So the, the material's better. Uh, certainly the adhesives are better. Uh, the adhesive I used is I use is a uh, kind of an aerospace glue, uh, an epoxy glue. It's totally waterproof, indestructible stuff. And uh, the glues in the past were maybe hide glues and things that aren't nearly as strong and, and durable as what we're doing now. Do I remember seeing Scott Chase use even like a a regular Elmer's type glue? That's People do use it, but even right. that glue is better than the old glues. Right. Yeah, Scott, I think, used uh, it's uh, what they call a Urac-based glue. It's, uh, it's a water-based glue. It's, that's a, it. it's a good uh, woodworking glue. But uh, yeah. uh, So anyway, those, those things are different. Uh, the moisture content, I think, and how we treat the bamboo is different. We are very careful about drying it and uh, getting all the moisture out. So anyway, that's a lot of the differences. And I really do think uh, the quality control and far as measurements go, we're paying very close attention to that now. I mean, the rods that I make are making, uh, I'm measuring the individual strips to uh, a thousandth of an inch. Mm -hmm. And... With the machines in the past, to get that accuracy may not be within within possibility of those machines. So when David talks about taper, what the way that a cane rod is built is you're using a planing form. So you're removing material with the exception of what remains below the top of the planing form. Yeah. And that gets measured down to this tolerance that you're talking about. Yes, and there are six strips made into a, a, a standard six-strip bamboo rod, hexagonal shaped bamboo rod. And so if you can picture bamboo as having, what, what are the nodes? Are they nodes? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, the nodes. They're the, when the bamboo's growing, uh, 
there. Well, if you look at a piece of grass, you'll see it in a regular piece of grass as well. Every so often, there's a diaphragm that continues all the way through that stalk of grass. And for the grass to grow that way, for it to not collapse, it needs that internal structure. So that's what's called a node. And where the and in between the nodes, the fires run parallel, totally parallel. When they get to the node, they terminate and come together kind of like a finger joint in woodworking. Gotcha. And, uh, and that those are the nodes. And we stagger those. We don't put those right next to one another when we're making your rod. Oh, yeah. So for each of the six pieces, you would not have two nodes Correct. connected on opposite yeah. pieces. Okay. And there are various staggering methods. All rod makers maybe use two or three different styles. You know, that, right. that makes a difference as well. The commercial guys of the past would stagger the nodes, but not necessarily in any specific uh, technique. They would just be randomly staggered. Yeah, I think I think uh, we know because we've talked a lot about it. We've been around a ton of people, you way more than I. But um, just a little bit about the history of rod building. So I'm just going to give you my kind of layman's version of it that we had, you know, Maine always had great fishing, Atlantic salmon mm-hmm. fishing, brook trout fishing. And so it was a natural fit for people to start trying to commercialize and, and sell rods. So Maine was a place where we did that up mm-hmm. in the Bangor area specifically. And then I think it was around the Second World War that it really became commercialized, like on a mechanical level, right? So, yeah, so cane rods were really like a craftsman's thing, and then it turned into more of a. They started making them over off offshore. Am I right? Uh, there were ones made offshore. Uh, they were made generally, I think, in in Japan, but not with. Well, not with the same bamboo that we're using. They use Japanese bamboo, which is slightly different. Less has less of the strength fibers in it that that the Chinese bamboo has. Uh, actually, in the in the past, H. L. Leonard made machines. He used he used machines to make rods, and he was making rods in what was that eighteen was that sixteen eighteen seventy six. He went to the centennial yeah. celebration with yeah. rods. The thing is, a lot of these guys were gunsmiths Ah. for the Civil War, and the bottom sort of fell out of that market. I think Wheeler in Farmington, wasn't he? He was, and they were gunsmiths. That's right. Right. George Page came up and said, can you make a bamboo rod? And you you had all these guys, mostly guys, who fought in the Civil War, and they had pensions, they knew how to camp, and they'd heard about the fishing in Maine from the Maine people. And it was just ripe to get on the railroad, come up and go fly fishing. And so suddenly there was this big demand for all the gunsmiths found a new profession. And H.O. Leonard did too. And both Leonard and Wheeler from Farmington were at the Centennial Exhibition in San Francisco. Both won awards for their bamboo rods in San Francisco that year. Wheeler was a contemporary, and he was a very good rod maker, not nearly as famous as H.L. Leonard, but that had more to do probably with marketing than skill. H.L. Wheeler was a very good rod maker. Yeah, so you're saying that uh, H.L. Leonard was better at marketing, maybe as a business person, but Wheeler had some skills. Oh, yes. Wheeler made rods for Fly Rod Crosby. Right. But H.L. Leonard... They moved him lock, stock, and barrel down to the Catskills, partially because they wanted to keep a a finger on him. He, uh, you know, they wanted 
quality control. They wanted to really control things. Wheeler never sold his his name. He did sell rods under other names like Acme, like the Roadrunner. But Triple <laughs> <laughs> A or something. But but Leonard, you know, he moved down to New York with the guys who worked with him and a lot of them became famous in their own right in the ride making world. Yeah, many of those. Yeah. So, Kathy, you just said they. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't capture the segue from him being his own sole proprietorship to he got he got purchased. Well, pretty much. Yeah, what's, what's the history? Ab- you know, Abercrombie Ab- and Fitch. Oh, Abercrombie yeah. and Fitch, right? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So they had the finger in it. And uh, many of his people went on, as Kathy was starting to say. Uh, yeah. uh, Fred Fred Thomas's father. Uh, other other people worked in the Leonard shop, continued on on their own as well. It was kind of a, a college of rod makers in a way. So, David, take us, just because I know you know so much about it, I think it's fascinating. Take me from when you first put your hands on a, a comb of bamboo until you have a finished product. Just in a layman's description of how is a rod built? Okay. Uh, a comb is basically a stalk of bamboo. And uh I, I'll select that stock based on the rod design that I'm going to make. Some are thicker walled than others. Some are not so thick. So if it's a smaller rod, you know, I'll use a smaller piece of bamboo. No need to use the great big thick walled stuff. So once I do that, then I will, uh, I will actually, I make a lot of my rods as what they call flamed, which is a kind of a drying technique and a little bit of a coloration where you would heat the outer surface of the column to make it kind of a charcoal color. With a flame. With a flame, yeah, a propane torch. There, Other people do it different ways. I mean, there were um, other, in the past, all kinds of different ways to flame a rod or to give it that color. But I'll do that first, then I'll split that column into as many individual strips as possible. Hopefully I'll get enough to make uh, a butt section and two tips. So I'll have to have enough enough splits to do that, which each uh, section takes six. So that's uh, 18 pieces of bamboo split out. And once those are split, I'll uh, establish basically a triangular cross-section, equilateral cross-section on all those strips. Do that with either a plane and a, what they call a roughing form, which has a 60-degree uh, slot placed in it, and you lay that strip down and plane the sides until they become that triangular cross-section. That's a uniform section, no taper whatsoever on that. Mm-hmm. Then the next step is to go to a planing form, which is adjustable for any taper that you could come up with from one end, a large end to one end, to a narrow end on the other put those strips in that planing form and make the final taper on an individual strip. Uh, Six of them for a single tip, uh, 12 for two tips, and six for the butt section on a two-piece rod. Once those are done, uh, they're laminated or glued together and uh, straighten and then glue it. And then it's messy. There's glue all over and that needs to be cleaned up and made pretty at that point. Uh, Ferrules are installed. There's one fascinating uh, part of this that I, I don't want you to miss, David. It's the binding part of it. Oh, yes. How do you hold six? I mean, if you think about, we were just talking about the the tolerance and the tightness and how this thing has to turn out straight at the end of the day, right? Yeah. So tell me, explain to the audience what binding is. Okay. Uh, several kinds of binders are available. In fact, 
Some people bind those six strips just by hand, just by placing a spool of a binding cord under their foot and wrapping it around those six strips once they've been smeared with glue. Uh, but one of the more popular binders is one that was invented by Everett Garrison, and it's a cradle that holds the six strips. There's a drive belt that turns those six strips, and then there's a bobbin on top that applies a string as they're spun through this cradle. Uh, and that's done under tension so that there are those strips are held together tightly as glue sets. It's fascinating to watch. Yeah. And it happens quickly. It does. Yeah. Do you have one? I do. Yeah. yeah. I've yeah. seen Scott's, uh, Scott Chase's at his yeah. uh, shop. Actually, I think I have three of them. <laughs> <laughs> you, you have a problem, right? <laughs> <laughs> you know, well, and then teaching. When you teach a class, you need lots. Yeah. Oh, well, that's true, right? I hadn't thought that. So I did interrupt you, David. You were talking about, um, you know, we, we got to binding, and then I think you started to go into the next step, and I interrupted you. So let's pick up from there. Oh, once they're bound, uh, they're really messy because glue oozes out, gets all over everything. Uh, the Once that glue is set or hardened, then that binding cord, which has been wrapped around those strips, has to be removed. Uh, you pull that off, file it off, scrape it off, whatever way you can get it off of there. Uh, but then the process starts in about sanding and making the outer surface smooth and, and nice looking. Sometimes there'll be straightening needed to be done, and that can be done with some heat. Oh, um, yeah, yeah. Uh, if the binding is done well, a lot of times there's not a whole lot of straightening to be done. Okay. Uh, then that's a rod section. That's basically a blank, like you would buy a graphite blank to wrap guides on or to, or to put grips and so forth on. Then the process is the same as putting together a graphite blank. Yeah, you know. with the exception of the ferrule. Yes, the ferrules, uh, these ferrules are uh, what we use mostly are nickel silver ferrules. And uh, the rod section has to be turned round in a way to accept that nickel silver ferrule. And then those are those are glued on. So you chuck the 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 rod itself right into a lathe and yes. turn it. Yeah. And you might, how do you, I mean, I'm, I was thinking about that this morning as I was driving over here. I was trying to like anticipate our conversation. And then one question that I, I mean, I work in a machine shop, not mm. directly, but with guys that run. How do you know how much to take away so that you don't take away too much? Uh, well, the rods are, ferrules are come standard sizes of 64ths of an inch. So what you do, you're going to have to meet that unless you're making your own ferrules, which some people do and some people have done. But I don't. I, there's a company in Vermont that makes the best in the world, in my opinion. I buy them from him. Uh, so that rod section has to be cut to one of those sizes. Say like a four-weight, four-weight, five-weight rod may have a 12 64th diameter section there at the joint. So do you just sit with a digital micrometer and just keep checking and checking yeah. see how much more you have to take, yeah. take away? And I know also one of the issues that I ran into with some of my first rods was the glue that holds a ferrule on was failing. Mm -hmm. And so what are you guys using now to hold the ferrules uh, on? There's a couple of epoxies that work really well. And what's happened with some epoxies is they call cause a, a, a corrosion to happen in the, in the nickel silver. So you need a type of epoxy that won't do that. One that's been, 3M makes a couple of them. And again, they're industrial epoxies. You buy them through an industrial company and, and they seem to work well. The original, I, and my original ones way back were just off the shelf stuff from hardware store. And it wasn't a good, a good choice. The other thing with gluing metal to essentially wood yeah. is uh, they have different expansion rates. Yeah. When you're heating up 
you know, when you're going from a cold climate or and then all of a sudden it gets warm or a thunderstorm happens, stuff like that. The metal maybe expands more than, than the bamboo. So that epoxy has to have a little give to it has to be somewhat rubbery, mm-hmm. and then that'll accommodate that. And the other thing with ferrule adhesives is make sure that uh, the inside of the uh, the nickel-silver ferrule is incredibly clean. Clean that out with uh, whatever solvents will get any kind of remnant oils, greases, stuff like that. Yeah. And then I'll rough that up slightly so that there's a little tooth to grab onto for the epoxy. I got it. Other people do do stuff like pin ferrules and that's been that was a big deal in the past because the epoxies weren't nearly as good as they are now so is that kind of like a little bit of a prong sticking into the yeah like it's a actually physical yeah, you drill right through the ferrule and right through the bamboo and uh, place a small nickel silver wire right through i've it. never seen that uh, it, it used to be done a lot in the older rods cool. and then the ends are peened over and you may not even see it it's done so carefully and so well you wouldn't see it well, it certainly wouldn't pull off no no i don't like that idea because i don't like the idea of any possibility of water entering that joint mm-hmm. so i i don't do that no <laughs> there's probably no need to do it either. yeah let's talk cork mm-hmm. i notice like modern fly rods if you look in a lot of the magazines or catalogs or any of the websites they're starting to use different materials other than cork yeah, there, there's nothing finer than cork to me for a grip on, on oh, a fly I prefer rod. it. Uh, it's difficult, though, because the cork industry is, uh, you know, a wine may, most of the cork is sold for wine corks. And as the wine makers start using different things for those for those corks, so to speak, there are, the growers aren't growing cork. And, and cork comes from the bark of a tree and I'm sure Portugal or something. That's exactly so, right. Yep. Yeah. And uh, I'm not really sure what's happening with that. I have a fairly large inventory of individual rings. I, I laminate my my grips together and turn them to whatever shape is uh, the client may prefer. So, yeah. And then those can be selected. I prefer thinner cork rings. Okay. So if the cork ring is only a quarter of an inch wide and there happens to be a pit through it, you only see a quarter of an inch pit. Oh, yeah. Whereas if a half-inch wide ring, you'll see a, a half-inch pin yes. going through the cork ring. Yeah. So. I just got a new, a 15-year-old, new-to-me, sage fly rod mm. uh, from a guy that I went fishing with this summer that had one and hadn't been using it. Because I can't get this rod anymore. Right. And the mm-hmm. quality of the cork from back then was incredibly good. And the one that I owned, I had worn a hole right through yeah. with where the thumb is, just probably out of, you know, anxiety while fishing or whatever. <laughs> but, um, you know, I, I, I noticed that the cane rod builders like yourself and, and the folks that I've met have, you hoard the good stuff. You have really good floral grade yes. cork. And we just don't see that in the commercial rods. And, you know, it's, it's a pain because, you know, when I do buy cork, I'll resort that cork. You know, it's supposedly, a, like you say, floral grade or whatever. But then as you look through it, some of them aren't so good. So, you know, I'll just kind of reject those or use those for other things. Well, I think uh, we've covered a lot of great ground so far. And it's a probably good opportunity for us to take a short break. And uh, when we come back, I want to talk a little bit about your writing, Kathy, and how David's rod building kind of segued into your writing. Sound good? Sounds great. All right. We'll come back in a minute. Thanks. 
This Flyline flashback is dedicated to the famous rod builder from Farmington, Maine, Charles E. Wheeler. Wheeler was a prominent firearms maker and cane rod builder that ran a shop at the corner of Broadway and High Street in Farmington, taking over the gun building craft from his father, Albert Gallatin Wheeler. According to historical accounts, a prominent New Yorker and founder of the Aquasic Angling Association, George Shepard Page, was using some of the first examples of split cane rods to handle the large rangely trout he was pursuing. He wondered if a pair of gunsmiths downstream on the Sandy River could construct something similar. Charles Wheeler agreed to make a six-strip rod for Page, and after testing the Wheeler rod, Page quickly encouraged the young man to make more on speculation. The gunsmith shop was experiencing a post-war slump, and the rod-making enterprise took over for Charles Wheeler and his team of talented craftsmen. From an 1876 excerpt of a text produced by the Farmington Historical Society, I paraphrase. A medal and diploma of excellence were awarded to Charles E. Wheeler of Farmington for his split bamboo fishing rods. Their manufacture was launched by Mr. Wheeler in 1868, the latest improved machinery is used, some of which is of his own design and invention, and uses steam as a motive for power. These rods are beautiful in finish and richly ornamented. Some retail as high as $50 at the shop, but his sales are generally to the trade in the cities of Boston, New York, Cincinnati, and Chicago. Charles Wheeler was a talented musician and producer of hunting decoys, fishing hooks, as well as firearms and eventually his ultimate success operating a cane rod manufacturing business in Farmington, Maine. And now, back to the second half of our episode. As I walk through your home, there isn't one wall that doesn't have some sort of reference to fly fishing. Uh, every, everything I see around you, it's really the, the bone marrow of who you both are. Who started fly fishing first? Good question. Probably uh, Dave. Yeah, probably me. I I fished as a kid, you know, with my dad mostly ice through the ice, ice fishing for pan fish and bass in Michigan. And as I grew a little older, you know, and got a bicycle, I started uh, riding around with a spin casting rod and surface plugs for bass. So that's what got me on the fishing on the surface, which I really loved. So after that, I started fooling around with tying my own flies. I remember reading an article in a Boy Scout magazine about how to make a fly tying vice out of a wooden double by cutting a slot in it. And I did that and tried to tie a fly. It wasn't very successful. But uh, then I think really we didn't start being serious about fly fishing until we moved to Maine and moved to Van Buren. Look, I, growing up in the Midwest, I'd fish for panfish since I was born, just like David. But when we moved up to Van Buren, there was a trout stream right through town, and you could walk to it. And that was, what, about 1977? 76. Yeah. And so David knew how to fly fish, showed me. And then we got we started backpacking in the Wind River Mountains a lot, and there's no better excuse to stop than you have to stop and fly fish because you're at uh, ten thousand feet and you're too tired to go. And we did a lot there, and uh, yeah. yeah, we just kind of kept with it. So Wind River, I'm thinking Idaho, uh, uh, Wyoming. Wyoming. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. We did a lot in Idaho. Um, 
then we're back here, you know, and things just uh, just seem such a natural fit if you live in Maine and you fly fish. And we're we're the kind of people that want to know what's going on in the water and the and the whole ecosystem. And fly fishing for us was less about fishing yes. than about exploring places you can't normally see. Mm-hmm. There's and, a world under there that in in order to understand it, you somehow have to connect with it. And and with the fly, you can do that. You can find out where the fish are, what they're doing, what they're eating. And there's no way to just see that without without a flyer up. And so a lot of times we might take one rod between the two of us. And so that we're both right there in on what's going on. We went to Labrador once and there was a fish trying to grab a blue wing olive. It was probably like a three or four pound brook trout. And I'm trying to catch it and I can't, but I want to see it. So I quick hand the rod to David and say, you know, catch this fish so we can see it. And that night we heard the guides at the guide table at the lodge talking about how weird we were (laughs) because you know they had this perfect fish lined up for me and I tried it a couple times so I didn't want to sting it anymore pass it to David so what so we could see this fish and and then they were tagging them to see how far they traveled in the system and we got to be part of that and that was almost the best part of the whole adventure was where did you go we went to the Three Rivers Lodge, was Robin, Robin Reed. Robin Reed, yeah. Wonderful. We've been there twice, and it's just yeah. bucket list, trip of a lifetime. Yeah. We got to do twice. And it's uh, that's actually what Brook Trout Forest, the bulk of that book, mm-hmm. is a trip to Labrador. The concept of being in a region that's maybe half the size of Massachusetts and there are 10 people there mm-hmm. was really attractive to us. Yeah. I went I've been to Labrador, went this summer, and then last year I went to the Mackenzie River Lodge, which is just maybe a half an hour from where you guys were at Three Rivers. And we were flying in with the same clients heading to Three Rivers in the plane. Mm -hmm. And as you said, flying for hours and not seeing anything but Christmas trees and bogs and water It's a testimony to how much we've messed up this planet. Mm. Oh, gosh. When we were there, um, we were going to fly. The guides wanted to scout the situation with caribou. And they had two spaces open on the plane that said, you guys want to hop in. So we said, sure. And we flew another hour and a half north and looked and looked and looked for caribou. We also stopped and fished for our char, but we looked and we never saw any caribou. And it was it was a devastating year. That was the first year they closed the hunting. What was that attributed to, Kathy? Um, was it a hard winter? Or? No, it's it's systemic now. It yeah. yeah, it's it's I not think good. They might have thought it was. I mean, the browse that caribou eat, you know, grow so slowly. The sphagnum moss or whatever kind of moss, yeah. and uh, and it just hadn't recovered from previous. Lots water. of research whether or not climactic impacts yeah. are having a taking a toll. Of course they are. So yeah. you know it was a concern. Yeah. Well, let's um come. So you you both have really been fly fishing for a long time. Moving to Maine was something that really kickstarted uh, it again for you. Mm-hmm. But um, Kathy, I know that you uh, you wrote your first book based on your experience with David building his rod. Take the story from there. Okay. So David um, decided to make a fly rod, which he gave to me. 
but I was very aware that it takes a lot of time to do it very well. And David only does things very well. So when he started to make a second one, he was going to give it to um, a mutual friend who uh, was our canoeing partner. We'd done boundary waters and things with them. And I said, it's going to, you know, if you're working 10, 12 hour days and then you're making a rod in the evenings and we do everything together, what's my rule? And David said, why don't you write down what I'm doing? We'll give it to him for Christmas and we'll give him what you write too. So I started writing and, you know, you can't write he played the king. He played the king. He played the king <laughs> for the 10, 15, 20 hours it takes to play the king. So I started adding things like what's going on in our bog here in Maine and the seasons and all of those things that we're, we were doing when the gray tree frog started and those kinds of things. And at Christmas time, we gave it to our friend along with the rod. And he said, but how does the story end? I said, uh, we gave you the rod. He said, well, take it back and write that into it. So I took the, the gift back, wrote the ending, and then sent it to a friend who was a rod maker and said, what do you think of this? And he wrote back and said, don't show anyone your manuscript. And I thought, I have a manuscript, <laughs> and uh, he published it yes. just like that. So you had no illusions of becoming a writer. None at all. It just happened. Just right, and I still with I've written five books now, and with each one I just start something that strikes me about what is going on. Mm-hmm. Um, when I when I wrote when I made my first rod from scratch with David's help, of course, uh, when we teach classes rod making, and then integrate in it what's going on maybe with the trout unlimited effort maybe with the kids life in maine as we know it yeah. which is a fantastic life so how are each of the books different uh, the, th- the first book you just explained and then uh headwaters fall as snow that's your second book headwaters fall as snow two good stories about this i started writing um i asked my superintendent if I could have a leave for 18 days, coincidentally over Christmas, so I'd have enough time to get a good draft going of a winter book. And I had picked a name for it and went to a Trout Unlimited meeting where James Babb was there. Yeah. And that's what he had named his book. So I had one night before I sent it in to come up with a new name for the book. And so... I took, if um, you're searching for the headwaters, you haven't far to go because everywhere in the state of Maine, headwaters fall as snow. Took that and put it on it. And that book is more anecdotes, mostly about winter in Maine, falling through the ice, you know, things that we do here. And um, that one I wrote essentially over Christmas, deliberately trying to write a book. And gave it to the same publisher who snatched it up. Yeah, yeah. So that was that one. Maybe not so much fishing related? Not as much fishing related. Yeah. You know, there is some, but there's a, it's more um, essays, one whole essay about just crawling on my hands and knees. This is the day before ticks around the pond, just to look at the different frogs, snakes, and ducks that are there. 
things like that. So that was that was Headwaters. There's a whole uh, essay in there about getting the wood-burning cook stove going for the first time with David's elderly mom, who used to work on one. And there's a great part where we're sitting in here where you can't see above your waist high. There's so much smoke in the house where she says, you know, I'm starting to remember that these things have a draft. <laughs> <laughs> it began to occur to her. Um, Changing Planes, your next book? Changing Planes, again, started out journaling with a pen, not telling anybody I was writing. And uh, it starts outside the window where there are moose tracks right through the yard. And I'm following them in the dark. And look through the window, and there's David inside planing cane. And I decided, you know what, this winter I'm going to make a rod. And so the changing of planes in that is the progression from David to me making my first bamboo rod. Changing planes. Mm-hmm. Good, good analogy. That's great. Um, and then this one has a beautiful cover we were talking about earlier, uh, Brook Trout Forest. You know, Maine's forests in the fall are the same colors as it's brook trout in the fall. And they're magnificent, Mm -hmm. beautiful colors. So this one, it uh, starts, this guide that we knew went fishing with us and got me onto the biggest fish that I had ever caught at that time. And I thought I need to make a bigger rod. <laughs> and that was, of course, you. Oh, my God. <laughs> All right. All right. You kind of snuck up on me there. Yes. Right. And um, was this in our secret spot? Yes, secret okay. spot. You know, like like one of those where do guides fish on their day off kind of situations. It, it is where we go and, to fish on our day off. And we know. were so thrilled to go. And it was the last ditch, and I caught that fish. And, um, But, of course, this was a school year started book. And so all through it, I also talk about the kids' programs at school. And kids may learn from teachers, but adults learn from teachers like you. And also trips to Labrador, which is also in this book. And in the course of it, um, I won't say what happens, but there is an hour-by-hour play of driving all the way up to catching the plane to Labrador, and then what happens there, including those moments where you say, am I going to be the only person that went to Labrador and never caught a fish? You know, which didn't turn out to be true, but there was that moment. (laughs) So uh, when you went, did you go to Wabush, or did you go to Labrador City, or did you go to Shefferville? Lab City. Lab City, yeah. And you drove from from here. here. Mm -hmm. 24 hours. Yeah. Right? We we stayed overnight in the woods along the way one night. Nice. You know, that was was fun. It was all an adventure. Um, Then uh, the letters to Everett Garrison. You were approached to write that, Kathy. Did you tell me that? I did. And Everett Garrison is one of the fathers of modern bamboo rod making, the guy with the planing form, the guy who, with Hoagie Carmichael, whose dad wrote Stardust and things like that, Hoagie, uh, his son, um, slept on a cot in Everett Garrison's shop enough nights so he could finally write what's considered the Bible of bamboo rod making. And uh, the museum nearest where 
this, a lot of this rod making took place where the main rod makers, when they went to the Catskills, this area, the museum that's there that David was the lead instructor for their bamboo rod making classes for 15 years, um, the, the executive director came out just after I'd retired and said, I need a writer who's retired, who knows about bamboo rod making and can really do research like a librarian. <laughs> he could have substituted all that for you. <laughs> and handed me a box that contained all of um, the shop notes that Garrison had, as well as about 300 letters that were written to them. him. Some of them were from, you could just tell by the letterhead, they were from, you know, Secretary of State George Marshall, who wrote the Marshall Plan and was taking a ride over to Beetle Smith before he went to Russia to be the liaison after World War II. And some of them were just a kid who worked at McDonald's who saved his money for a garrison fly rod. And my job was to figure out who the, all these people were and then present it in a narrative way that brought it home to people to see the humanity of this person, but also the threads that tie the community that fishes came together. And these people were amazing. There was a woman who taught people to drive in Boston during blackouts during World War II. There was a guy who established uh, the Bank of Arizona eventually and helped found a political movement out there. But there were people that you would know, that you hear of. And um, about that time, the museum underwent new directorship. And my previous publisher said, why am I not involved? I want the, to do this book too. So he took the paperback version that we had and he indexed it and illustrated made it a polished hardcover and put that out. And so that's the book. That's that what this is now. here. Right. Yeah, this is fantastic. So you're really doing some archival work, too. Oh, gosh. It took me a year. And some of these people are hard to find. Imagine if you write a letter to a friend, and that's all I have to go on. You know, and uh, one of the people that took the hardest amount of time some really, bless the internet, but some really backdoor digging, I found out through an obituary in an obscure paper that he'd spent his time in covert black ops for the CIA. So no wonder he was hard to find. Uh, and, and he was a, he owned a garrison fly rod. And he owned a garrison fly rod. One of the rods was owned by Nelson Rockefeller's daughter, who gained some infamy um, when her brother disappeared in Borneo, New Guinea, somewhere, probably taken by headhunters. Yes. And she had a garrison rod. And this community of rod makers, when we were in Michigan, we were talking to one of the more established rod makers with links to the old Paul Young factory, or not factory, shop. And he had in his hands that very rod because Garrison had a wonderful system of uh, serial numbers and you could trace every rod. I was going to ask you about that. I, I bet every maker is different. Like, mm -hmm. how many rods have, do you think you've made it? 
Oh, shoot. I really would have to look that up to tell you the truth. I don't. Some people keep track of that kind of thing. Exactly. I really don't. Yeah. I keep track in that I number them, but I don't. I It's not... It's not like a goal to hit some certain number. No, you know. No. So I really don't. I forget about it. I just make it. He kind of deliberately forgets yeah. about. Yeah, it. but if you, yeah. if you guys in the orbit that you're living in now, like working with the museum, and I want to segue into your work with the museum. Uh, do you, are you finding like Garrison kept cr- chronological history of the, who he made rods for and when they were made and what it was and all that sort well, of thing? What he did, his system was he alphabetically started the first year he started selling rods. Really, he would make a letter and a number, and so the first rod say in the number. He ended up going back through the alphabet again over his career because he made rods more than 26 years. Yeah. But he probably made three or 400 Something like that. Rods. Something My sequence like is a little different. I use uh, the number of the rod for a specific year and then the years. Include, so I'll know when the rod was made gotcha. and which, which number rod of that year it was made. And did, like I know uh, with H.L. Leonard, he had a shop, so he had... Apprentices making rods under his name with him, mm-hmm. but Garrison. Was- Garrison only ever taught two people how to make rods. Gus Nevros, who was from Cleveland, and a guy from Vermont whose names escapes me. But it wasn't that. It was it was more like modern rod makers are now, um, where it's one person whose name is on the rod. That's what you see. That's what you get. That's right. If you get a Van Bruegel rod. Nobody else touched yeah, that. That's right. You know. Yeah. Whereas, you know, there's nothing wrong with the the Leonard rods, and there's wonderful stories about that rod shop. You know, and, and rod makers have gatherings where we share information and history, and it's uh, it's really a community. But we had a gathering in Bangor and and researched where Leonard lived, where you know the shop was, and we actually have met. His granddaughter, Effie Thomas's Effie granddaughter, Tom. Effie Thomas worked with Gary, uh, with Leonard originally, and we even—I mean, she had the the little scalpel turned into a knife that was used by um, her grandmother and her mother to uh, clip the ends of the uh, the thread when they. Tied guides on. When they wrapped the guides Right. On. Still had that with the names written on them. Wow. You know, I mean, the keys to the shop. And she told us about when she was a little, sitting on the steps and rolling cork green, rings down the steps to see how many steps before they fell over. Things like that. that and, many, um, and many of those guys did that. They had, like I was explaining earlier about making the bamboo rod blank. And that's where their work would end. And they would have other people wrap guides and put grips on and so forth. Interesting. Yeah, that was more, it was more of a business than for those name brand uh, commercial rod makers of the day. So and, it's interesting you say that because um, I went over to the Orvis factory we'll call it in manchester yeah. years ago they were making a substantial donation to the uh, project healing waters when mm-hmm. i was working with them and i was surprised to hear that their highest end rods you know the thousand dollar rods right do you know how they get their finish no by in a cottage industry they send the rods home oh with a gal or a guy mm-hmm. who works from home maybe they're uh, parents of newborn children or they're taking care of an elderly parent or something like that 
and they have set up in their home how to finish that. Those Helios rods are finished in someone's home. Yeah. You'd think, never guess that, would you? I think Winston did that as well. I wouldn't be surprised. Winston and, uh, yeah. So. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's really interesting to get into, you know, what's behind all of these. You know, just down the road here in Farmington's where Charles Wheeler was, same time as H.O. Leonard. And Charles Wheeler had 14 guys who worked for him in his shop. And the shop, the building is still there and just down from the big granny store, a couple buildings. And um, he and his wife never had children. There was a, a orphan girl who was their maid that they took care of, I guess. And um, the, it's so interesting that people from um, New Jersey and Pennsylvania drove up here one time. We all went to the Farmington Cemetery so that we could show them the three maple trees and right near that, Charles Wheeler's grave. Because the, it's all so tangible. They feel like people you know. Mm -hmm. And when you pick up the bamboo rod, you know, this taper was from Garrison. That cork was from here. And that guide was from there. And the whole rod is like a living community before you ever put your own history to it and all those memories that you have with the rod. Of course. Yeah. It's funny. I grew up, uh, went to a private school. And one of my teachers eventually married a, a violin maker mm -hmm. um, down in, uh, he was working out of Freeport. He's since sold the business to another friend of mine. But violin makers are very, they're like the same ilk oh, yes. as rod makers. It's almost like you know you can't make money doing it. Mm. You put, because it's never really finished, right? Mm -hmm. um, you know, violin makers will spend a year making one instrument or longer, right? right? How, what, how long does it take to build a rod, David? Uh, in, in number of hours, 40 to 60 hours, I would wow, say. Wow, that's actually enough. faster than I thought. Yeah, uh, it was longer when I first started. You know, skill gets easier. Things get easier to do. Mm -hmm. uh, the, a lot of the time is in uh, finish work. If you want to really get an immaculate finish mm -hmm. on the thing, it's like finishing a fine piece of furniture. Mm -hmm. So there's that pre a lot of prep time for that. And, mm -hmm. and it's, you know, it's too bad because that's really what people will notice is the finish, but they don't. They can't notice how accurate the actual rod was made. They they can't know how close you were to the tolerances. But in my opinion is if you're going to be that specific and detail-oriented on the construction, you better be that way on the finish work, too, because that's kind of what shows it off. Yeah. So, you know, so there's a lot of time involved in that. You know, it's funny that you should mention bam or uh, violin makers because we taught – one of the classes we taught in the Catskills, we had uh, a couple of years, he came a, uh, a bow maker, a stringed instrument bow maker. And, and the skill level he had was perfect for making a bamboo rod. He just, uh, he knew how to work with native material or, or organic material. And uh, his, his, his work was fantastic. He, uh, since had an issue our last class he couldn't attend because the material that he makes bows for became unavailable it was uh, banned in the u.s because it's from uh, the tropics and, and well brazil yeah. decided not to export it, it anymore brazil, yeah and so it's it's a crisis or it was just as our class was about to start he got he had word and so imagine if you suddenly found out 
bamboo wasn't available. Yeah. And you were a bamboo rod maker. This is kind of the situation he fell into. Yeah, Didn't see. that happen at one point here? For bamboo? Yeah. Uh, it was after or during World War II that you couldn't get it from China. That's it. Uh, but there was plenty of storehouse. And that was an issue that uh, I think the industry kind of utilized to to build up the, the synthetic rod business because uh, there were, according to the importer that we used, he had enough bamboo stored to provide for the industry pretty much for the rest of his life. But uh, but you couldn't get any new stuff. Mm-hmm. Now that's changed. That's now you can still get it. But. You know, bamboo that rod makers use is there's a lot of bamboos. There's a native bamboo in Maine. But this particular bamboo, right now, there's really one importer in the United States who goes to this certain area of China, the Guangdong region, and picks out specifically bamboo that will be perfect for rod making. And there really are more than one or two people that do this. And at this point, there's one. Um, But the one who did it for... His company did it for a hundred years. We actually knew him for a long time. And so we've got to listen to his side of the whole bamboo industry from the importer's point of view and and bribing robbers when they were pirates, when they would float bamboo down the river and all of these things that happened in the past. Kathy, why do I feel like I've seen a documentary about this guy? You have. Um, you probably have seen trout grass. That's it. Which is, I think, available uh, again online. But it was made by um, a bamboo importer, Andy Royer, who was young but tragically passed, and uh, Hoagie Carmichael and guys from the Winston shop. It was actually narrated by David Duncan, uh, the author. Of the River Wide. Yeah. And and it goes from China all the way through to making and fishing the rod. That's it. Tom McGuay. And it's a film. And it's a film. Yeah. That's right. I have seen it. Uh, It's been a while, but it's been at least 12 years maybe since it's Does that sound about right? They've reissued it. Uh So, yeah. I'm going to watch it tonight. Oh, it's great. It's a great movie. Let's talk a little bit. We touched, we talked about the museum. Tell me how you guys were brought into the museum. I know you said for, through through uh, rod building, mm-hmm. David, and you teaching, but I think you have a larger footprint. Yeah, it's uh, what it's called the Catskills uh, Fly Fishing Center and Museum in Livingston Manor, New York. And we used to hold, uh, well, we still do, we held uh, rod making gatherings there. In other words, every year in September, bunch of rod makers would get together and talk about techniques and tapers and whatnot, all the esoteric stuff we talk about. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that's where it was held. So we got to know the museum from that. And, and the trust, one of the trustees from the museum had a daughter who worked in Bar Harbor for Jackson Labs. Okay. And that was when my book, Moose, came out. And Ella Bean was so good to me. They put it on a a little pedestal with a light on it at the flagship store. And he stopped and saw the book, bought it, read it. And the next year at the gathering, approached the rod makers and said, why doesn't this museum 
offer a class, which is funny because that's the same way the kids' class got started was mm-hmm. because of and that. And this guy is a local physician and a trustee for the museum, and we got to know him, and he, he ended up actually taking our class as well. So, so we had uh, eight students and four instructors the first year for the museum, and the reason we, they did it that way was to avoid dogma. Because, you know, one rod maker might say, always torch your rods with a, with a flame, flame look. Another one might say, never do that. Scott, Chase, and Dave. And totally, exactly. You yeah. know? Yeah. So why not have both of them there, demonstrate how to do it, and the students themselves can, can find their own path. And that was our idea, to educate potential rod makers in various techniques, various ways, and they just take take that information and try it and and go off on their own. And we've really been involved from Superboo to all this stuff and trying to educate people to do it on their own rather than being tied to somebody else's way of doing things. The museum just had a little room about as big as a living room, and it was summer and it was hot. And in the course of rod makers gatherings being held there and growing from a small group to many, uh, well over 100 people and donations and interest, now they have a large, large shop with a lot of all the original garrison equipment, uh, paint equipment, a complete rod making setup where you can go and learn to make rods or you can, um, if you already know how use equipment, it's the only museum I know of in the world that has a complete well-outfitted rod making area. In, a in the of, museum. In the yeah, museum. In the museum. And a lot of that happened because of our gatherings there of rod makers. We helped fund that. In fact, one of the attendees is an architect and he designed that facility for us. Uh, and, you know, they're still paying for it, of course, now. It did cost some money, but it, it got started because of that. The Catskills Museum is a grassroots museum. It's not like there's patrons who pay for everything and it's magnificent. It's like you and David and I decide something mm-hmm. and we rally the cause and rally the people and work for years and mm-hmm. we have it. Yeah. And it's, it's very... It, it's just a marvelous place. I've never been, so I'm trying to picture. I mean, I've been to the the museum in Aquasic. Uh-huh. Um, I mean, do they have exhibits? Is there a conservator? Is there? Yes, there's a regular exhibit hall, and a lot of the stuff uh, from the region. Uh, a lot of, of Joan Wolf is very active in the museum, so a lot of the stuff about me and and Joan and uh, the Darbys and the Daddies, the the fly tying families. Their original desks are there oh, and, yeah. and those kinds of things. In fact, I have a Joan Wolf story. You know, um, we were, when the rod makers get together, it's sort of like a super boo. Everybody brings their rods out and you try them and somebody will have made the same rod in a two-piece, a three-piece, a four-piece, mm-hmm. a five-piece. Oh, wow. oh, yeah. And you can stand side by side and cast them and, and decide, how does that feel? You know, an old feral rod, how does that feel? And, <laughs> and um, you're standing and rod makers kind of line the parking area and there's grass in the middle and there's like enough room for five people to cast. And I was out there casting a rod and I felt this tap on my shoulder and somebody whispered, 
I could help you do that a little better, dear. And I turn around and it's Joan Wall. And of course, I'm sure I've gone scarlet. And she's standing there being helpful. And all everyone else has stopped. We're and watching. all the rod makers are looking. <laughs> and finally, to save the situation, somebody says, Who's that casting with Kathy Scott? <laughs> course, you know, Did you know she was there? I didn't at that point, but you know what? She's so down to earth, yes. so personable. We've become good friends. She always comes over when we're teaching a class, and 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 it's just a thrill, like having you know real royalty rock through the room. She is yeah. earned royalty. We try to. Let the students know that, you know, there's a great possibility that Joan would show show up and talk to us. And they're all excited usually to have that happen. So, you know, Lee Wolf's good friend, Ted Grigowski, lost his wife and Joan Wolf lost Lee. And the two of them, Ted and Joan, were married for a long time. Oh. And Ted was working for the government and helped start the EPA at the time. When David ended up getting hired by the EPA in Michigan. A little before, you know, when Nixon started the EPA. And yeah. he has the stories about how that was actually, we're standing around and I said this and he said, and so it's it's just wonderful history in the area, you the know. And the museum is a such that, you know, they have quite a historic collection of bamboo rods, rare and expensive rods, but the then director really felt that the only reason these exist is to cast. That's right. You don't, they're not, they don't exist just to have displays. You know, they, they have a function and that's casting them. So he would get these, you know, rare and expensive rods out of certain tapers. And we would cast those, like you had mentioned earlier, against, you know, a modern version of the same rod. And we could tell the differences and how that, how they different, how they perform differently. Yeah. And the other thing too, that may not be obvious to the audience, but I think I noticed that a huge thing that affects the way a rod casts is the line you're using on it. Oh, exactly. I mean, I've had, I had, that's actually how I got onto the ticker, the Dickerson uh, mm -hmm. taper was I had a client in my boat that had one of Scott Chase's uh, mm -hmm. Dickerson rods. Mm -hmm. And I said, can I try that out? And I did, and it just didn't feel right. 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 I think he had a, a cork, not a Cortland. What was the peach colored line that everyone liked? Yeah, that's the, the, yeah, the peach, Cortland peach, they call it, or 444. You remember? Yeah. yeah. And I just took it off and I put on a, a different line. I think it was an airflow line that mm -hmm. someone that Bob Dion and I had got given. And it just transformed the rod. I love the airflow lines. Yeah. It, it, it did. I, if, I don't know if it was just the line, the taper, the weight, but all of a sudden, I mean, I think I was on the phone with Scott Chase within 24 hours yeah. building one of these rods. Yeah. I and wish that fly shops would have demo lines available. I know. Uh, you know, and this is kind of the issue with bamboo rods as well and why we created Superboo. It's just you can't really tell what these things are like unless you cast them. And same way with fly lines. You can't really tell how they're going to perform, even on a graphite rod or whatever. You know, they really should have... You should have a selection that you could try. I, I can't remember the person's name, and I don't want to remember it, but I was at Superboo one year, and a guy came up to me and asked me to test his rod that he mm -hmm. had made. It was an older gentleman, and he had a, he made this beautiful fly rod mm -hmm. and had just put the guides on in the wrong place. Oh. It was yeah. just the way that the line would travel through the the, mm -hmm. the, 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 the guides. It wouldn't. 
it would bump through them, mm-hmm. if you will. And it had a lot to do with the spacing of the guides. Yes. Tell me about that, David. Uh, different techniques to space guides. It's usually somewhat of a progressive technique. In other words, they're closer together at the tip, and then they get farther and farther apart as you go down the rod. Uh, okay. Uh, there's a couple of computer programs that you can use to do that. Uh, different uh, if a rod has is more of what we would call tip action. In other words, most of the flexes in the tip, you'd more concentrate guides closer to the tip. Oh. If it's a more full flexing rod, you would spread them out. The progression would be a little different to do that. Uh, I imagine if you're making a replica rod like a like a Payne 101, mm-hmm. are those guides at a very specific? Well, actually, you would. There are those available. There, you know, a lot of people have measured guide spacing on the historic rods, and that stuff's available. The only the one of the problem I think you kind of mentioned it is though the rods of that era were casting a totally different line than the lines we have right now. Let's talk about that. So that I want to talk about two things: silk lines and furled leaders. Yeah. <laughs> Take me there. Yeah. Yeah. We really enjoy modern silk lines. And, uh, you know, they do take a little extra care in that they, you know, you don't put them away wet. You don't just come in, stick your reel in a bag and put it away wet. You know, I do have to dry them off. But they're made for the same line weight, their diameter is smaller. So a floating line, it still floats, but it may actually be denser than water. But it floats because of uh, hydrophilic coating on the outside of the line. But they're excellent lines when it's windy because a small diameter line, it's just an aerodynamic thing, just cuts through the wind so much easier. So they have more mass. Yeah. Got it. They, well, if it's a four-weight, it's the same mass for the 30-foot length as a four-weight plastic line, but their diameter diameter small. Gotcha. Yeah. So they cut through the wind. And, you know, uh, we like them. We like the tradition. Uh same way with the furled leaders, you know, it's a traditional thing, and and they seem to really perform well. How did you, Kathy? I think of you as being the furled leader be- person between the two of you. Oh yeah, so absolutely. You, you, take, <laughs> you, you take over. So, at a rod makers gathering, um, someone was, had a board, and they were taking unithread and stringing it up and then using a drill and and twirling two legs and then letting them spin together. And it was a fishing leader. And I said, I might not have time yet to learn to make a bamboo rod on my own, but I can do this. (laughs) So I looked into it and there were only like two or three people in the United States making these leaders. And yet they originated Back, Isaac Walton wrote about these mm-hmm. leaders. They were oh. made from horse hair then, mm-hmm. but they would tie uh, tail hair from uh, geldings or stallions because um, mares tend to get urine on their hair and it's not uh, their tails. It's not as strong. And they would tie them together when they would make these leaders and they would sell a contraption on the street corners for twirling these together. And, you know, I didn't want to do that. So I called the one person who was on the East Coast that was making them, Claude Freener. And I found a phone number and dialed it and got NASA. And it turned out he was a rocket scientist. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought, oh, that's it. I'm not going to be able to make this. A but... rocket scientist playing with string. Yeah. But, um, <laughs> and then there was a guy on the West Coast, Jim Kramer. But 
these rod makers in the Catskills put their heads together and came up with a simple way that I could figure it out. And it was so neat because you could make essentially a leader butt. It wasn't hollow like a braided one, so it didn't absorb a whole bunch of water. And all you had to do was change the tippet. That just spoke to me. And they were so supple. You know, anything that can improve my casting is a go for me. So I started making them on the tailgate of the truck when I went places. If there was something going on, uh, Kennebec Valley might be having a, a day, an alewife festival, I'll say it the Ford and Winslow, mm -hmm. I would just put my board out on a rock and show everybody how to make one. And everybody always said, I got it. I got it. And then I get the phone call. And the phone call <laughs> would be, what did you say? <laughs> so um, a friend of mine, I was writing for Midwest Fly Fishing Magazine out of Minneapolis. He wanted me to come out to a fly fishing show and demonstrate them because nobody out there was making them. So he flew me out for that. And same deal, you know, people come back again and again. I, I, it was so simple, but they walked away and forgot it. So we went out here on the deck one October afternoon, and I made leader after leader. And David filmed me, and I did a voiceover at school on an Apple uh, computer. Sure. And made a DVD so that I could distribute that. Well, that. You know, we did that for years, and I used, I only charged five, ten dollars for those, but I used all the money because the school fly fishing program never had a budget. Right. So I used the furled leader money for that, and then I taught kids at school how to make them, and then they couldn't sell them because they didn't know fly fishers. No. So they would make them. Give them to me, and I would take them to fly fishing shows and sell them, and then bring the kids back the money, this whole thing. And then um, finally, just a, a year or so ago, I put the DVD on YouTube. So it's just out there free to anybody who wants oh, to. I'm going to have to watch that to tonight, too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and it's so. neat because it's a similar process. I mean, Maine has a tradition of making ropes on the coast. Of course. And this is exactly the same process. You just don't need a warehouse. Yeah. You and know? the you know, and the difference is, as Kathy's leaders are tapered, they're not just straight gauge like a rope would be. Hers are tapered in three or four steps. So, so the company I work for, as many companies are, owned by a larger company. Mm -hmm. And in the uh, portfolio of our company is the Yale Cord guys sure. down in Southern Maine. I don't know much about them, but yeah, it's a real industry. Yeah, mm -hmm. it, um, it is. Or go out west, and a lot of ranchers make their own rope. Oh. And they have a, a gizmo with a crank that could be called a super Isaac Walton machine. Oh, wow. You know, yeah. so the same technology, basically. Okay. Very interesting. We can go on forever. Uh, before we end, though, I do want to talk a little bit about your work with Trout Unlimited, uh, both locally and then kind of where you're at or where you recently have ended, David. Mm -hmm. um, tell me how you got started with TM. I think we really got started, both of us, with TU during uh, the attempt to remove the Edwards Dam on the Kennebec River. That just seemed like a, a very uh, important project, and we got involved with our local uh, Kennebec Valley TU. Uh, I made a, a bamboo rod for one of our banquets for that, and then we've been members with that organization ever since. Uh, after uh, just being a member, 
I ended up being on uh, the main council directorship board. And then after being on that, I was elected uh, to the what they call the Trout Unlimited National Leadership Council, which is every state council has a representative to the national level. Uh, one of our functions at that national level, level was to set the national TU's conservation agenda. So we would do that every year. Uh, we would also vet uh, potential uh, uh, new members of the council and uh, things like uh, Trout Unlimited has a, a group called the Embrace a Stream Council that they fund projects. We would vet people want, wanting to apply to that and so forth. And I've just finished with that. Uh, that's normally a, a five-year uh, program, but I ended up spending 10 years, and now we've I found somebody, a, a new member of Trout Unlimited, and I've gotten her interested enough to become a National Leadership Council representative. So that that's it for that, for my part of it. So Kathy's a little different. Like we said, we, we normally try to do everything together. People tease us about it, but it's, it works for us. We're one of those couples. And so my involvement with Trout Unlimited, um, Edwards Dam, of course, incredibly important. First dam to come out nationally, you know, um, by a grassroots effort, more or less. And um, so after that, as I said, uh, the kids wanted to do fly fishing at school, and I knew I couldn't just do it by myself, mm -hmm. didn't have the gear. And I uh, approached Trout Unlimited, Greg Pont, and uh, Greg and Jimmy Thibodeau and Marshall DeMond and Dave Hedrick, and I, I leave names out, but all those guys were so great. Um, 15 weeks in a row. For, Probably Michael. Yeah, Michael. Yeah. Mike, Michael just, uh, there was a point where Mike and I put our heads together and Linda and um, managed to get uh, uh, fly fishing outfits for yes. 21 kids I this. who didn't have rods and didn't have the means to get them for their for themselves and we one year we really went to town and managed to get a lot of rods thanks to mike but um so you know how it is with these organizations first you say you'll be the secretary and then the next thing you know you're the president of the chapter and you agree to be on the state council and then the next thing you know you're the chair of the state council for me. So that was certainly interesting. And David and I got to work with, say, Paul Christman at DMR, going out in the winter and planting salmon eggs in the upper sandy and then going back in the summer and, and counting fry traps and just all these different things that really enriched our lives, just a richer, better lives because Trout Unlimited cane rods are in it. That project in the Sandy started out, I think Mike Holt was very instrumental in that. We That was a local chapter project originally. He came to one of the meetings and said, this, uh, this salmon guy's got this technique where he's using these old refrigerators to, to bury in the ground next to a sand, possible salmon stream and put fertilized eggs in it and funnel water through that until the fry hatched and then dumping them in the stream and we were all excited about that and that occurred on the upper upper sandy river section here so that that was one of our we'd go out all, all winter and take the snow off the top and make sure they were okay so as time went on and david was so involved at the national level of trout unlimited um trout unlimited national which is a 
you know, Trail Unlimited has about 180,000 members and I don't know how many supporters in addition to that. And um, they have a board of trustees with fiduciary responsibilities, all of that, but they're kind of a, a guiding soul for to you. And it's like a 36 or so member board and two thirds of them are people who are chosen because they have something um, that they can really offer. Like maybe they're a lawyer, maybe they're a, a biologist, who knows what, but 10 people on that board are grassroots trustees like you and I would know. And there's a vetting process and things like that. And I was um, thrilled to be offered one of those spots. So I serve on the National Board of Trustees for Trout Unlimited. That's fantastic, Kathy. So, and here's these two incredible people living right in the in the small town of Mercer, Maine. I think it's just great, and you guys have such an impact. Um, again, I say I wanted to finish with the TU, but I have one more thing I want to talk about. Tell me about the Travers Award. Oh, Robert Traver wrote Anatomy of a Murder. His name really was John Volker, and he was a Supreme Court judge in Michigan. And he had a um, cabin on a little pond he discreetly called Frenchman's Pond, so you couldn't find it, in the Upper Peninsula. And he wrote the books Trope Magic and Trope Madness. And he um, was a champion uh, of the the atmosphere of fly fishing. He wrote Testament of a Fly Fisherman, which is a long essay but it, or a speech, but it starts out, I fish because I love the environs where fish are found, which are invariably beautiful. And there was an award, I think Fly Rod and Reel maybe did it originally. I think you're right. Mm-hmm. And it was... Uh, a competition worldwide, but mostly this nation in England. Um, and the, the idea was to submit a story that encompassed the joy, the environment, and uh, the essence of Robert Travers' vision of fly fishing in your own story. And this went on for quite a while. We all knew about it. It was really cool. And we were visiting a rod-making friend who was repairing a rod, and he said, you're going to want to see this. It belonged to John Volker. And we were thrilled. We picked it up, and uh, it, it needed a little work. The judge was notorious for putting a rod on top of his car and taking off and having to pick it up later. And these were wonderful, like Kushner um, bamboo rods. So we followed up with about that rod, and we met the judge's son-in-law, and he said, why don't you come fish fish Frenchman's Pond, which we got to do. I met him up there, and we signed the guest book, and the guy who revived the Traver Award saw my name in the guest book and said, I bet you'd be willing to judge the finalists for the award. So now there are maybe a hundred people in her stories, and there are teams that narrow that down to six. And I, along with Seth Norman and a couple other people, 
are the finalist judge. And on Thursday, we put our heads together over the last six stories. This Thursday. This yes. Thursday. Yeah. And pick this year's winner of uh-huh. the Volcker Award. And yeah. that story, I believe, is published in the American Museum of Fly Fishing. Right. American Museum yeah. of Fly Fishing in Vermont is now the patron yeah. of this award. So this is continuous theme and thread that I'm just in talking with you and knowing you that you guys, uh, you really have dedicated yourselves in so many different ways to the things that make your heart go pitter-pat, but you are always lifting up somebody else. You're not lifting up yourselves. Don't you see that? Have you you discovered that that's what... that's kind of our goal, you know, to, to involve others and if they want, to inform them, to educate them, to help them find the joy, however that works for them. And none of us will be here forever. But, uh, you know, to continue this joy and this interest in the environment and uh, and fishing through these environment is something we really enjoy. So, you, David, you know, you could have put up your shingle and said, I'm not going to teach students or I'm not mm-hmm. going to work in a teaching capacity. I'm going to build fly rods and I'm going to sell them. And I'm not going to tell anybody how I do it because I have this secret proprietary right. way. Right. Instead, you did just the opposite. Exactly. Yeah. You know, I would uh, I've said that a hundred times to people, you know, I will tell you anything about how I make a rod. That doesn't mean you'll make it that way. That's right. And I don't care if you do, but ask me anything. I'll tell you. There's no secrets here. Yeah. And you're writing, you probably. Sure. You know, I've done more book reviews for other people, book blurbs for Mm -hmm. other people. um, And even with these books that I have done, I look at them all as a celebration of other people, of the community of fly fishers. You know, people say, don't name names in your book. Sorry, if that's a rule, I'm breaking it every time. Because if if, uh, Garrison, you know, was alive, I would just give him a big hug for making that rod that I fish. Every time now I go out fishing, I fish a garrison taper rod anymore. Mm-hmm. And and to be able to give back to him by by celebrating him and all these people who loved him and respected him. He never, or he never kept a letter, but I don't think he ever got a letter that somebody didn't celebrate him. And for me to have a chance, and Hoagie Carmichael to have written the Bible on rod making, mm-hmm. And for me to be able to sit next to him and him say that he's glad I wrote this book, it it really finished our project. And he calls me the other garrison writer with Hoki Carmichael. That's right. You know, it just, you know, you don't set out maybe to do things deliberately for other people. That's just that's just how you live. It's an unintended consequence it's of just, it. It's just absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Well, thank you so much for joining the podcast. And I know our audience is going to love hearing your stories. Well, thank yeah. you. And, and thank you for what you've been in our life. My very first, first drift boat trip ever was with Michael Jones. Oh, yeah. That yeah. was um, when we did the Made in Maine, I think. Probably. Made in Maine. Yeah. Yes. Well, that was another one of those expanding this this community to people so that they can get out and understand this stuff. And, and the more we do this, the more protection will happen and the more that will be saved for the future. That brings us to the end of this episode. Thank you for joining us for this intimate discussion. And thank you for listening to Flyline Podcast. 
A new Flyline podcast episode will be released every two weeks on Tuesdays, so be sure to come back to meet our next famous guest. Until then, this is Michael Jones, and we invite you to visit the blog section of our website to enjoy photos and contributions from our guests and experience all of our episodes at flylinepodcast.com.